your host for Lacrosse Talk PM, Rick Sola. All right, welcome to Lacrosse Talk PM, 608 785 7914. That's the talk and text line. Dr. Aaron Engel joining me this hour, the Lacrosse School Superintendent. All right, so happy, <laughs> relieved. How do you feel today? Uh, the referendum passes, the six year, $60 million referendum. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh- Relieved is the biggest emotion, but also uh, super excited to see continued strong support for public education here in La Crosse. Um, and then how, how did you feel about the La Crosse school board race? In a, a big change on the school board because there were four new members coming on. I, I don't, uh, according to our research, Brad Williams got that memory that he doesn't forget anything. Uh, we didn't think that many new board members, so not even incumbents, but you would get four new board members. Uh, we didn't think that happened in, in, since the 1990s. Uh, how do you think that transition will go? Uh, I think it'll I think it'll be a good transition. Uh, it's always uh, you know good to see a strong interest in running for school board. That's not always the case. So to have uh, you know nine folks before the primary interested in, in uh, serving our community in that capacity, I think, is, is great. And uh, as we bring a, a new school board on, uh, every year we've done this, you know, new folks coming in, uh, there's a, a lot uh, of stuff to learn. It uh, can be a steep learning curve sometimes. There's a lot that goes on in, in schools. But I know uh, at least uh, one is a former school board member, so it should come with some uh, interesting history and perspective that'll be uh, valuable for our board and uh, the other folks that I've talked to them have been excited and motivated to to serve our community. So I look forward to bringing them on and get them uh, uh, on board. It would be weird if you said, "Yeah, it's just, this is terrible," and I don't feel good about it. It would be weird. It's probably a silly question to ask, but <laughs> but then if you do answer it like that, then I then I make some headlines, I guess. Um, you guys put you, uh, the school district. I think it's a letter from you. I just I, I screenshot everything, but the sincerely uh, probably says at the bottom, Doctor Aaron Engel. But this is your thanks to the community, right? This letter you put out. Yeah, put out uh, a letter to the email contacts that we have, as well as to, to news media, just thanking uh, our community for their incredible support to have a, a referendum, a fifth consecutive operational referendum pass. You know, and, and for a bigger ask than we've had in the past, uh, really shows that people understand the challenges that we're experiencing and support public education and the path that we're on. Now, we must have did a pretty good job as a community, as a school district, maybe even as a media of informing the public. This is all kind of a learning process for me as well, not just in interviewing school board members all the time, but um, learning about operating budget referendums versus capital budget referendums and the difference because when 70% of the community says, no, we don't want to build new high school, and then you come back the next election and say, hey, we need money for this thing, then you have to differentiate between the two, and you did a pretty good job. But were you nervous going in? Because maybe you would get some blowback from the last referendum that didn't pass overwhelmingly, 70%, uh, coming into this one. Yeah, absolutely. We were a little nervous in in two different ways. First, uh, you know, we presented a solution to our, our challenges at the in the last referendum by building a new high school and our community clearly rejected that. You know, so we're a little bit nervous about, you know, how would that impact, you know, future referenda. Uh and then the the second thing we were a little nervous about was will people see the difference between an operational and a and a capital referendum? And uh one of the things I think that made this operational referendum successful is 
you know, for that whole last year, we were listening very closely to the community. And as we got into informational sessions for the capital referendum for the one high school, uh, we were hearing that people understood the challenges, but they uh, didn't like the solution. And that was, you know, clearly apparent at the election. And so this, this last referendum, this operational referendum that just passed with 65% voting yes, um, that was a response to that. We were listening, we heard what they said, and this was targeted at those things that they wanted us to, to focus on. But definitely always a little nervous uh, about how people will uh, view two different types of referenda, but based on the success, I feel like people understood the difference. We communicated well, and people got the information they needed. And this is something that the community does, what, every five years they have to go, you, the school district has to go to the community and, and sort of beg or hold out your hand, hold out the hands and see, like, hey, we need this because, you know, we can always point to the state legislature uh, not helping out. But this is uh, every five years or so? Yeah, since I think 2002, this has been our, our process. Uh, to ask for that, you know, additional bit of money that helps educate our kids to the standards our community expects. And uh, I think it's been well received, you know, five consecutive referenda over or 20 years. And so uh, incredibly thankful that our community supports public education and sees the value of that extra investment here locally. I wish that the, the state government would, you know, simply provide us inflationary increases uh, this last year, we didn't get anything new for public education, despite having really high inflation. And so as the price of gas goes up, the price of books, the price of food, that cuts into what we're able to do for kids, because we still have to meet those basic requirements as well. Yeah, and this operating budget referendum that passed yesterday, uh, what'd you say, 65% of the vote, um, it's a pretty basic thing too, right? Like this isn't this isn't any game changer in terms of what the district can do moving forward, right? This is just kind of, all right, we're going to, like, maybe maybe some little things will be improved, but it's kind of status quo? More or less status quo. Uh, It'll allow us to do a little extra maintenance to our buildings as we consolidate the two middle schools. It'll allow us to keep a a few extra staff on board, uh, some of those ESSER uh, supports that we were able to provide over the last two years. But, uh, you know, this this is a basics referendum. This will allow us to keep the lights on and continue to provide the same high quality public education that we have been providing for decades. At what point do we not, are we not able to keep the lights on? We always say that. I mean, it's very easy, but like, oh man, the school district is such a, like a the, the money crunch that they, they've, they've had to turn the lights off. Have we had to do that yet? Yeah. Anywhere? <laughs> um, to, I mean, I guess referendum was crucial at, you know, funding our schools. But we did have to turn the lights off at Lincoln Middle School. Right. You know? So, I mean, that was a part of our budget savings as well. We've um, reduced 40 positions over the last three years. We've cut budgets across departments, and we closed a building. You know, and that's a, that was a difficult decision that the school board made. But that does kind of represent that lights going off piece, you know. And we have to continue to be as efficient as possible to make the best possible use of our taxpayer dollars so that our kids get all the benefits that they can. Yeah, as I was saying it, I was thinking, crap, they closed the school. They literally are turning the <laughs> lights off. My big joke is actually not a joke at all. It's totally true. All right, Dr. Aaron Engel, this lacrosse school superintendent, is going to stick around with us. 
right, welcome back to Lacrosse Talk PM. 608-785-7914 is the talk and text line, or the text line, because the talk line's kind of filled by Dr. Aaron Engel. He's the lacrosse school superintendent. Um, I just wanna, I just wanna do a shout out for all the, all the kids that you may, I don't know, you probably had. Did you have Johnny Davis when you were superintendent? Was Johnny Davis at? Were you superintendent when Johnny Davis was a senior? Or was that right before you? I think he left right as I was coming in, so I got to see the the season where they should have won the state championship. Okay, yeah. So like the yeah, the, like the COVID year, right, where they kind of canceled yep. the season. Um, but I'll just I'll just bring this up because we got three kind of like lacrosse school district kids in the news in the sporting world. And I'll start I'll start low and I'll end with Johnny Davis. I don't know if it's low, but uh, UW Parkside, uh, Jackson Hamilton, he's a Logan grad. He he plays for UW Parkside, but he actually isn't going to play for UW Parkside. He's entering the transfer portal, but he also declared for the NBA. And it was on he did this on April 1st. So I, I didn't know if it was an April Fool's joke or something. But from all indications, it's serious. And I only say that because he only played 12.4 minutes a game for for uh, Parkside. But uh, from everything I've heard about Jackson uh, Hamilton, he's a great kid, a Logan grad. And then uh, not just Johnny Davis, but his brother, twin brother Jordan Davis uh, entered the transfer portal for the Badgers. And Jordan had like a, a great start to the season for the Badgers. He started, I think, the first 18 games and then uh, a freshman Connor Asigian, I'm butchering his name, uh, kind of took the starting role from Jordan, and now he's entered the transfer portal as well. But the biggest news from the lacrosse school district in the sporting, in the like pro sporting world, which you don't often get to say, but Johnny Davis had the best game of his career last night, and I would say it was probably one of the best games from last night, although Joel Embiid scored 50 and Giannis Antetokounmpo had a triple-double. But playing against Giannis Antetokounmpo, Johnny Davis, a Central High graduate, had 20 points, which is pretty incredible. His first 20-point game, his second-ever start, and it was uh, he's a place for the Washington Wizards. He also had five rebounds, four assists, two steals, two blocks, only one turnover, he play, and he played the most minutes on a team, 37 minutes. And he shot, he shot really well, which has often been he's, – he's, he's struggled shooting of late, but he's had back-to-back games now where he started and scored career highs. He had 16 on Sunday against the Knicks. And 20 points uh, last night against the Bucks. So pretty incredible news uh, for Johnny Davis out of the lacrosse school district. Yeah, that's incredible to have that kind of a night. I know when he was at UW-Madison, it seemed to take him a year to kind of get settled. Maybe that's the, the way it is in the NBA. And, you know, I think it's tough for some of those rookies when they come in with limited minutes. It takes a little while to get the feel for a game. So it seems like if you give Johnny Davis a shot, He's going to show up over the course of a whole game, so that's incredible. Yeah, definitely. His freshman year at the, with the Badgers was kind of like, hey, I'm here, and then there were six or seven seniors on the team that were, you know, the guys. So he kind of took a back seat, and probably as he should, maybe maybe his talent should have, you know, maybe pushed those guys aside a little bit, but, it, you know, maybe that's just his nature. And then the next year, all those seniors graduate, and he, you know, he's a player of the year candidate in college basketball. He was probably one of the top three players in the league. He was the tenth overall pick by the Wizards, and uh, now he's getting a lot of minutes as the Wizards' season comes to close because they want to get their rookie uh, some playing time. So yeah, uh, incredible game from Johnny Davis last last night against the Bucks, and it was cool to see him do that against the Bucks. The only thing that sucks is it wasn't in Milwaukee because that would have been incredible. That would have been incredible. You know, and I know the Wizards were kind of guard-heavy this year with their roster. Maybe they make some off-season moves and, and create some space for him. I was looking at the Jackson Hamilton and some of his stats from his last year at Parkside. 
six seven and he shoots forty two percent from three. That's a case for an NBA career. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, he 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 will probably he's in the transfer portal. He didn't hire an agent, so he can just go back to college. I'm guessing he'll just he'll just go get picked up from from another college. We might even see him. I mean, there is a there is a world here where like Winona State likes to pick up these guys, and then they thrive. And for when I covered Winona State basketball, they weren't winning national championships. Because they would get these transfers like this come over, and then they thrive in Division Two, and then they go on and have pretty good careers. That sounds like a, an amazing pathway. And if he gets a little bit closer to home and has all of our home support, that'd be great too. Yeah. Um, all right. I want to talk about news that happened today that I we just didn't hear about, but you you informed me before the show. Um, we see this uh, in Tennessee, especially the Tennessee state capital is uh, surrounded or, or engulfed with children with students. Uh, protesting gun violence and or protesting yeah protesting gun violence or wanting their legislature to do something about gun violence as they literally say there's they literally are saying there's nothing we can do that's literally a comment that came out of a i think a u.s house member out of tennessee um but we saw this a little bit today in lacrosse can you can you just tell us what happened yeah at uh, logan high school we had uh, a number of students who walked out in support of those efforts in, in Tennessee to show solidarity. Uh, and uh, it's uh, something that we definitely support as a school district, is our, our students exercising their uh, First Amendment rights and their uh, political speech. Uh, we want uh, that kind of activity when our kids grow up and leave our schools. And so helping them learn how to do that in the right way uh, has been a, a hallmark of our, our high schools over the years. And uh, we were, uh, it was really a neat opportunity. Our, our, the kids approached the, the principal before they, they did it the day before and they said, hey, like, we're thinking about doing this. And so helped them through doing it the right way. And uh, the students were awesome, uh, had some great messages and uh, support for others who have experienced tragedy. And so, uh, so neat to see our students uh, getting involved in, in, in national issues. Now, how do you, as an administration and a principal, a superintendent, handle something like that? The students obviously came forward and said probably when and where we're going to do this. I don't know if you know how many kids are going to show up, but how, how do you handle that? Do you, do you inform the police just to, to give them a heads up? Do you guys uh, show up to show support or do you not show up to let them do their thing, you know, and let you know so that they don't feel like you're going to do something to them? Yeah, we always appreciate it when kids give us a heads up. That's not always how it works, though. Um, but, you know, these aren't, uh, you know, so so infrequent that we don't know kind of how to handle it. Um, unless there's a, a traffic issue, you know, the police don't necessarily need to get involved. But we do want to make sure kids are safe as they're uh, making whatever statements that they're doing. We want to make sure that media is doing things the right way as they come in as well. Our goal is mostly to support students in, in doing things the right way so that they can get their message out there without uh, any other things being highlighted that don't need to be. And so, uh, you know, we may be physically present depending on the, the size of the group, but ultimately we want the students to be the center of whatever that uh, message is. Yeah, definitely. Were there any faculty involved in, in helping students? Sometimes, fa- you know, sometimes there'll be teachers that support this stuff too and will be with the students. Uh, I wasn't there, so I can't, I can't give you any... Uh, I don't have any inside knowledge on on how the protests went or even how many. So whatever info you have, uh, Aaron, let me know. Let us know. Yeah, I think it was a, 
Yeah, it was about 20 students, I believe, uh, that, that uh, walked out. Uh, and uh, I don't believe there were faculty involved, but like I said, they did work with administration and, and went through the, the right processes in order to make their voice heard. Um, and this is a thing that you, this is one another one of the questions where you're not going to say, oh, that was that's a terrible thing. But like you've seen, like you, you even kind of hinted at it. This isn't something that's so uh, that doesn't happen all, with all that much regularity, but it happens enough uh, where you're used to it. But how how does that make you guys feel as a as a school district to see see students kind of involved in things that are going on in the world that maybe maybe back when we were kids that that maybe didn't happen all the time? Yeah, I, I personally uh, take it as a sense of pride. Our, our goal is to have, you know, active citizens in our community. We want them getting out to vote. We want them running for office. We want them uh, exercising their First Amendment rights. And so when our students start practicing that and can have the benefit of adult guidance and practice in a controlled setting, I think it, it only benefits our students, benefits benefits our our society. Now, we've had plenty of situations over the years, or at least I have, you know, where kids weren't doing it as a part of a concerted activity. It was more, uh, you know, unruly or filled with profanity. And, you know, kids have a right to be angry. And and depending on the issue, uh, you know, free speech extends to, to, you know, most of the words in the English language. But uh, when kids go through the process of being proactive about this and organizing around an issue, it really speaks to uh, the impact that it has now and the impact they'll have later uh, as a citizen in our community. Well, do, do you have an do you have an example of an experience you you had that that wasn't the the greatest? Um, you know, when I was a, a, a high school principal, you know, I had some students that were protesting the dress code changes that we were making. And it was despite the fact that we'd involved students in making those changes, uh, despite the fact that our parents supported it. Uh, and, you know, there were other avenues they could have pursued to, to make that change before they decided to walk out. And uh, once again, you know, uh, helped trying to encourage them to do it the right way. But, uh, you know, that was uh, an example where there were other avenues to exhaust before maybe they went on, on that particular path. In this case, when it's gun violence nationwide, a walkout seems perfectly reasonable to me and uh, a good way to exercise their voice. And do you as a superintendent, um, I don't know, do you have any clout here or do you, do you put your opinion to what the students are protesting when, when this happens? Um, our principals are pretty calibrated to, you know, kind of student issues. We knew this um, walkout was coming, you know, quite a ways in advance, you know, so it wasn't uh, a total surprise for us. Um, but, um, you know, I don't really weigh in on these things. You know, a student's political speech is theirs. Uh, you know, we have uh, our own opportunities for sp- political speech. You know, I'm going to go testify at the Joint Finance Committee on Tuesday, and that's how I'm going to exercise my right to my role. So I think students can exercise that how they feel is best, and if they follow our, our, our rules and processes, uh, we can ensure that their their primary message is what's heard and not some of that other stuff. Does Aaron Engel, the citizen, and um, I, I don't, I'm going to get this wrong, but you're not, are you, are you a veteran, but you're like active, uh, what's your position in the military? Yeah, I'm in, I'm in the Wisconsin Army National Guard. I've been in for 20 years this month. And uh, I'm a lieutenant colonel and uh, a battalion commander of a unit that trains other soldiers across the nation. Yeah, so do you have any opinions as, as a person with that kind of experience and just as a citizen in terms of, of where we're at with gun, gun violence? 
Um, no particular opinion as it relates to my membership in the, the National Guard. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think we all want less gun violence. And I think our state legislatures, our federal government has been debating for years over how to best accomplish that. And uh, I'm certainly not an expert in that area, so I leave it to them to to figure out the best solutions. But I know in schools we've done everything we can to promote safety, school safety, reduce gun violence. The number one thing is always creating a, a positive school climate. As we go to the National Institute for Justice, the Department of Justice at the, in Wisconsin, it's really about a positive school climate, giving students a place they feel safe and can belong and uh, ensuring that we've got uh, adults there that support them every single day. I know you love the fact that I just want your opinion on guns. The only reason I do that is because I think you might be, you might have more experience on how to safely handle a gun and be trained to use a gun than anyone here listening. Yeah, I, I think I, 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 I likely do. Uh, you know, through the military, we spend a lot of time training on how to safely handle weapons. Uh, that said, I don't have any training on how to make gun legislation policy, so can't really weigh in there effectively. All right, that's Dr. Aaron Engel, lacrosse school superintendent. He's going to stick around with us the bottom half of the hour. We're going to get back into some of the the school district talk uh, when it comes to uh, building consolidation, decision-making, new school board, and and some of the interviews I did and and my takes from that and Aaron's opinion, Uh, but we got news coming up. All right, welcome back to Lacrosse Talk PM, 608-785-7914 is the text line. If you want to shoot me a text, if you got a school, if you got a question for Lacrosse School Superintendent, Dr. Aaron Engel, feel free to shoot me a text. Um, all right, I'll, let me put you on the air. There you go, Engel. Um, all right, so I want to talk about school consolidation, but I want to do this quick because you just said you got it as I'm talking to you. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to... As, as I interview candidates for school board, a lot of them talk about accountability and public trust and transparency. So one of the things that I've brought up a lot is building we're, as we're trying to consolidate buildings. And part of that conversation is we have eighty five million dollars in deferred maintenance in the lacrosse school district. And I think twenty five million of that is from three buildings. So that's a lot of deferred maintenance. And I think anyone that's a homeowner can understand that. I would love a new roof right now, but it's kind of a costly project. I think I need a new deck as well, and that's another costly project. But I'm just going to walk on the creaky deck and screw in the screws that come out. Uh, that's kind of what you guys are doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our needs exceed our budget every single year. We set aside uh, $1.2 million every year for capital maintenance. And you know, just our kind of projected needs each year for the next uh four years is somewhere around two to two and a half million dollars, you know, so, and those are legitimate needs that we're either going to have to seek grants or or put off for another, uh, who knows how long. And, you know, that 85 million number, that's from three years ago when we kind of started our long range facility planning process. We're up to about $102 million now between revised estimates for inflation or new projects that we've identified over time. Whoa, new projects. We can't be deferred maintenance. Can't be new projects though, right? Can it? Well, stuff pops up, you know, so we might get a, a, a leak in a roof and then we fix the leak, but then we identify an underlying issue and it should probably be re- replaced right now, but we don't have it in our budget. It's not in our funds. And so we add it to this list to be replaced. We thought it might last, you know, 10 years, but now we've identified an issue. Um, sometimes there's things that come up with, um, you know, plumbing 
uh, will think that this wall where there's uh, uh, plumbing is, is is fine, but then we get a leak. As we dive in there further, we find those pipes are corroded, and it might be in a 100-year-old building. And so it's natural that they need to be replaced, but now we've got to add that to our list. All right, now I get it. New projects is in new old projects that need to be updated yeah. new, new ones yeah. that haven't weren't on the radar before so like when my my hot water heater goes because it's 25 years old i'm just waiting for it to happen um all right so you have you have how many buildings do you have that are over 100 years old um we've got uh, the hogan administrative center we've got uh lincoln middle school which is coming offline and then we've got emerson elementary all right and then the, that age and then, I, I don't know, what are the ages of the next ones that are just like, whoa, these are pretty old? Are they all old? Yeah. I mean, they can't all be old. There's, Northside's pretty new. Uh, Northside's very new. Uh, Logan Middle has uh, its original portion there is 80 years old. Longfellow Middle is 80 years old. Um, you, know, our, you know, we think of uh, uh, Northwoods uh elementary school and uh southern bluffs are kind of our newer schools and even those are 30 years old at this point they're a third way through their lifespan at a minimum and there's already significant improvements that need to be made in those buildings so what is uh, when you say deferred maintenance now has jumped it's almost double what your budget is uh in this is it just is is it one of the things where the state's sitting on seven billion dollars in budget surplus and and you you scream at the legislature like because we've been sitting on it for over a year like hey here's a perfect way to get because these could come off the books right away with that that budget surplus when we talk about the budget surplus infrastructure is one of the things that we would use this money for and what better infrastructure than our children right yeah absolutely and you know that budget surplus is one-time revenues our maintenance costs are often one-time costs, you know, so that would actually be a, a perfect match if there was an interest there. Uh, you know, common things are, you know, just replace, tuck pointing and re- repairing of stone and, and bricks. You know, we've got to replace casework in, in classrooms. Uh, we've got, you know, boilers that go over time, uh, roofs, uh, exterior doors, just uh, unending lists of things when you've got, uh, you know, 15, 16 buildings and uh, probably a billion dollars in, in replaceable assets for our, our physical structures. Yeah. And those are all just like updating the stuff that's going old as opposed to updating things because like the tech is old or something, right? Like we could, we could do some stuff to, you know, maybe you do that in correlation, but a lot of this stuff is like maintenance needs that are, you know, to make the building work as a building, not just like, hey, we need, you know, new Elmos, I'll call them Elmos if you remember. You probably remember those, but oh, nobody yeah. else, <laughs> you know, or whatever. The the tech inside the classrooms. Um, but part of that process is is consolidation. And we've you 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 made the decision there. The Lacrosse School Board made the decision to close Lincoln. So with closing Lincoln, what is the what does the middle school consolidation look like? Because we're going to uh, everybody in the Lincoln building that works there, the classes. I don't know how does that work to go from three three middle schools to two. Yeah, so uh, it's a, a process that started uh, at the start of this school year back in uh, September, and we didn't know where the, the school board would land in terms of consolidation. But in all of our long-range plans, uh, it had us moving from three middle schools to two, regardless of location or, or those other things. And so we started that process then, starting to have conversations with a, a large group of, of teachers and administrators to, to think through what would need to happen. And the most important things at the outset were where our kids going to end up uh, in their new uh, middle school. 
and where our teachers going to end up, and, and how many uh, uh, teachers are necessary in order to to teach all of that curriculum. And now we're kind of into the the nitty gritty of finalizing, uh, you know, bell schedules and what classes are offered where, as we have new kids and new teachers in these buildings. Uh, and figuring out some of the the finer details to ensure that that transition is as smooth as possible. Now, I heard part of that plan is to have, okay, this is a a little confusing, but to have longer classes and therefore fewer classes. Like the, so instead of like when I was in school, it was eight periods. So maybe the middle schools would have seven periods and and maybe only six classes where one period is is free or uh, longer classes and fewer classes, if that makes sense. Is that part of the plan? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, one of the things we did as we were uh, thinking about this transition is we looked into to research and best practice around adolescence and that middle school age. And what we found was that having fewer transitions during the day is better. Having more time to focus on a single topic is better. And so as a part of this transition, we've gone from eight periods to seven, increase the amount of time that students have to engage in a subject, and the end result should be, you know, fewer challenges during the day for kids, uh, more time to focus on the things that they're interested in, uh, and uh, that should uh, help create a, a better, more positive culture and climate. Wait a minute. So in the TikTok age where kids can only watch a video for 30 seconds before they get bored, you've you've found some group or some... some uh, I don't know, think tank that says longer classes are better. <laughs> that just seems, I feel like we should have 25 classes and they should all be like seven minutes long. And then kids would really uh, at least be able to pay attention. Yeah, I think there's a, a difference between what's, uh, what creates uh, addictive behavior online and how people actually <laughs> <Right>. learn in practice. <laughs> uh, okay, so if we're going to have seven periods a day, so we'll have one less class. Um, how, what what do we ax out of the equation there? Because like, is it like we always talk about when we if we have to cut programs, like maybe art goes away or extracurriculars or a music class is so, like what classes kind of get cut out of the equation then? Yeah, it's not really cutting things. It's kind of rethinking how we do things. And so another uh, key developmental strategy at the middle level is creating an exploratory model. We want kids to be able to explore all different subject areas, curricula, future job opportunities. Uh, we don't want them to pick a, a single area and specialize you know, at a time when they should still be exploring what interests them. And so as we move to this model, we're ensuring that kids have an opportunity to explore music, the arts, uh, career and technical education, you know, welding, family consumer science, uh, business, marketing, foreign language, all the things that they might be interested in so that when they do get to high school, they're prepared to maybe make some stronger choices about what they want to focus on. Are we baby stepping our way to like changing the school model? I was listening to a podcast. I think it was a John Stewart podcast. Uh, just the, it, like we've been doing the school the same way for, you know, when we were in school back in the nineties. Uh, and then before that, like it's kind of been the same model. Are, are you kind of baby stepping the way out of this? Like there's math, there's science, there's, uh, you know, w- English history, and, and, and maybe kind of changing the, the academy of classes? Um, to a certain extent, I think less so in our traditional schools, uh, but, you know, in Polytechnic Institute, at, you know, downtown, uh, that charter school has a, a project-based learning approach that is interdisciplinary and connecting all of those things. And so I think that works for some students, but 
you know, one of the reasons we've been teaching in a similar way for, you know, 150, 200 years is because it works. Worked uh, 150 years ago and it works now. That said, it doesn't look remotely the same as it did, you know, 20, 30 years ago. The way that teachers teach today is vastly different. The resources that they're able to provide students, the activities that they engage in, uh, the the warm environment that they produce, uh, you know, is similar. Uh, but it's just a, an entirely different uh, way to instruct, uh, grade, assess students. All right. So when you when you consolidate to two middle schools from three, and then you cut from eight classes to seven, um, who decides that, and how much input do you get from? As we, as I interview school board members and they talk about transparency and public input and public trust, uh, so how, what's the decision making process for go, make? Because that sounds like a huge decision to go from uh, three schools to two and then from eight classes to seven. Uh, like staff, is staff involved in that conversation? Is parents involved in that conversation? Yeah, we heavily involve our staff. We have a pretty large uh, consolidation committee. I think it's over forty people. You know, primarily staff members and administrators. Um, you know, some of the things that guide us in this process are our school board policies. They're telling us what they expect us to provide to our students. And then we also have administrative policies that guide things. And uh, another thing that we have to consider is state statutes and, and DPI regulations. You know, we're required to offer so many minutes of instruction in various uh, curricular areas to our students at different age levels. And so all of those factors really constrain us pretty heavily as far as what we're actually able to do. And then our teachers and our principals are talking to parents every single day. And so they're picking up on what their interests and needs are and what they think would serve them best. And so it's a holistic process that takes in all of these inputs and really focuses on bringing that all to bear when our teachers and our administrators get together to make those decisions. Now, do you, when you go to the staff, do you go to them with the plan that we're going to go from eight to seven, or do you go to them with the plan like, like, hey, what kind of plan do you think we can make? Uh, I think there's always some kind of preconceived ideas about what's possible, but at the end of the day, we're taking the, the feedback uh, from our groups and proposing things that meet those expectations. And there's disagreement, to be sure, uh, amongst uh, teachers, amongst administrators about what the best courses. But what we've been able to do is generally achieve consensus. Most people agree that everything's been examined and that we can all uh, live with the, the result. All right. And then like you, you mentioned, like when you, when you cut a class out of a grade, uh, so seven classes instead of eight, we're, we're not going to lose any classes. Is it just, does it get incorporated? Is there more of a plan for when you're talking middle school? So what, sixth, seventh and eighth grade? Is it more like a, a three-year plan to get the, all the classes in, ingested into the kids? Because we're, we are cutting one, so I don't know how that works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the opportunities for uh, you know, multiple things in a single day might change. Things might shift to, to every other or semester-based as opposed to full year. Uh, sometimes the, the offerings uh, shift when they're offered. Maybe we were able to offer, you know, business marketing every year for three years. Maybe it's only two out of three. You know, so, so there's certainly some, some shifts there in the, the amount of time that's available to spend on each thing. But the goal is that over the course of a, a middle schooler's uh, time, they're able to explore all the different things that they might be interested in. And then when do you, I, I get that a lot of times, like the, the 
administration and staff, you're all educated in education. So there's a, and you're, and you're going to other entities that are educated in the best practices for this stuff. So I, I get that you don't want, you, you won't give the parents a ton of leeway into the decision-making process here, but when do you get the parents involved in, in something like this? Because I mean, some parents are going to understand this fully and, and have opinions that are that are knowledgeable and other parents maybe just like aren't involved in that situation so they wouldn't be as knowledgeable yeah depending on the the type of decision or uh the the scope of it you know parents may be involved in committees from time to time uh it might be focus groups it might be uh here's an email out to parents hey here's what we're thinking about give us any feedback that you might have you know, so it, it ranges depending on the, the issue and the topic. Uh, and so, uh, like I said, our, our teachers and our administrators are also talking to parents every single day and having conversations with them about what the future could like and, and getting a sense for, for where they're at. All right. Another, and just real quick before I let you go, another, like the next step here with building consolidation, is there, uh, what, what is the next step? I think you told me before the show some, some type of elementary school consolidation. Yeah, so this uh, spring here uh, in April, we're going to be putting together a facility advisory committee that will explore uh, our elementary facilities and the potential for some consolidation there. Uh, we know that uh, while we passed this referendum and we're hopeful about the state budget, we have to do everything we can to be efficient and, and frugal with our resources so that we can spend our money on the right things, our kids and our teachers. And so... We'll, this group will be examining our, our facilities and putting together some recommendations uh, at the end of November. And is that a group of, like, who is that group? Like, what is it made up of? Yeah, yeah it, this will all be uh, community members and a, a few uh, teachers and uh, support staff members. Um, our school board and administration won't be a part of this group, but uh, it'll be community members from the, the, the community of parents, uh, business owners, um, uh, senior citizens, realtors, uh, folks from all over who are able to um, provide their perspectives on how we uh, could proceed with our, our facilities. And then after that, something that we've seen in the past where maybe there's a online meeting or some kind of like public meeting where people can get input and information? Absolutely. Uh, once those uh, plans get uh, developed and uh, there, there'll be an opportunity uh, for uh, folks to weigh in on the front end in terms of kind of like what are the uh, criteria that we're looking at, and then certainly on the, the back end as well, once some things put together, uh, give folks an opportunity to, to comment. So is it, like cutting an elementary building kind of the next step? Everybody that I talk to is get rid of the Hogan, and you, I think you said it was 100 years old. So is that maybe the next step if we got to get rid of another building? Yeah, Hogan certainly is something that we continue to talk about, has a... Uh, Two and a half, three million dollars in deferred maintenance that we don't want to spend on this old building. Um, but we also know that closing it doesn't save a, a ton of money, maybe $100,000, $150,000 a year. Whereas if we consolidate one elementary school, we might be looking at, you know, $1.1 to $1.3 million a year. You know, and that's where we'll find those, those greater efficiencies. All right. That's Lacrosse School Superintendent Dr. Aaron Engel. Thanks for joining me, man. Thank you for having me on. Always appreciate it. All right, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, everybody, for listening.